gospel singing. He sure is worthy of it this morning. He deserves it. So thankful for that. You may be seated. This time, uh, Brother Sharp, Dr. Sharp, as we call him around here, he's going to be singing. It's a good song. Some of you will recognize it. Let it minister to your heart. Many years he walked in darkness as he groped along the way with his hands stretched out for pennies or just a bite to eat. It's a story of a blind man who met Jesus on the way. With the master's touch, the man looked up as the scoffers heard him say, Somebody touched me, somebody touched me. I was blind, but praise the Lord, now I can see. I was in darkness when Jesus found me, and when he touched me, now I can see. One day he touched a crippled man and made him walk again. Then the master saw with pleasure he had labored not in vain. Like the story of that crippled man, I once was bound by sin. But since the master came, oh, praise his name. Thank God I now can say. Somebody touched me, somebody touched me. I was blind, but praise the Lord, now I can see. I was in darkness when Jesus found me. And when he touched me, now I can see. Somebody touched me, somebody touched me. I was blind, but praise the Lord, now I can see. I was in darkness when Jesus found me, and when he touched me, now I am free. Thank you, Brother Sharp. Sure, I'm thankful for the day Jesus saved me. It's a blessing, and he does, and he does change your life, and that is a blessing. I was out um, in the street uh, playing with the boys, and that's because when you live in a suburb, you don't have any yard to play in, and so we're playing football in the street yesterday, as we do, and Brother Jones drove up last night to have uh, dinner with us, and so the boys... Um, they start introducing themselves to him. You know, the girls have A names, the boys have J names. And so Brother Jones immediately looks at me and like, why would you do that to somebody and name them that? And then he introduces his children, Mark and his wife, excuse me, <laughs> I've already messed up. See, I got up here to make fun of you and then I've already messed it up. Brother Michael Jones and his wife, Mindy, they've been married for 22 years, 25 years. Wow, I'm really off. Um, but the Lord has given them five children, Molly, Matthew, Macy, Mary, 
and Jack. No, I'm kidding. It's Mark. He said some other name this morning. I can't remember. Did I get those right? Good coat. Yeah, Maharshala, something like Mark for short. So for our, for our guest, um, uh, this is the beginning of our winter revival. And uh, Brother Michael Jones pastors in South Carolina, Oakwood Baptist Church, and been there for about eight years, I think. And the Lord's, the Lord's used him greatly there. He, before that, he pastored in North Carolina and then in California. And then God brought he and his family to South Carolina. And Brother Jones has been a help to me. The Lord allowed me to meet him several years ago just at a pastor training. And, and I just remember how kind he was. And he just hung out with me. He didn't know me from anybody else, but just took time to, to talk to me. I, I think we actually played a little bit of basketball together. And, and just you could tell he cares about people. And then the, the longer I get to know him and just, just observe here and preach different things like that, it's obvious that he loves the Lord. It's obvious that he takes the word of God serious, and it's obvious that he cares about people. And those are, the kind of, those are the kind of preachers that we want to have here, people that are genuine about Jesus and people that are genuine about people. And so we just want to have receptive hearts. And so sometimes you can be like, man, I hope this guy does this, or I hope he says this. Just remove any expectation like that from your mind and have the expectation that whatever God led him to say to us, I need to hear it, and I need to be responsive to it. And so, Pastor Jones, thank you for being my friend. Thank you for being a friend to this church and for being here. Last thing, there's a church that is willing to share their pastor, and their, their services are over there a couple hours ahead of us. And so we appreciate the, the kindness of his family, the kindness of his church family, and just supporting him and following the Lord and ministering to West Valley. So if you're happy that he's here, say amen, and thank you for being here this morning. to see God's house full on the Lord's day and to see that you're excited and anticipating something. And that's very encouraging to me. And I sure do appreciate your pastor. I could say many things in return there. I just really appreciate his friendship, the energy that he has for the Lord. And uh, man, I, I, I've been looking forward to being able to hang out with him and hang out with you. And I uh, trust that God will do a work in our heart. If you have a Bible, turn to John chapter one, John chapter one. Now, while you're turning there, uh, let me just say this, uh, what I'm going to say this morning is not going to be new to you, okay? I didn't come here with a new truth. Hey, I just found this. Nobody ever else has seen this before. In fact, if you hear a preacher say that, you might want to leave, you know? But what I have brought today is Peter said this, that I'm going to stir you up by putting you into remembrance. Now, isn't that what a revival is? What, I mean, how would you define it? I like to define it this way. It's a renewal of interest in spiritual things. Okay? And so that's what I want to do this week is just, hey, I, spiritual things are fresh to me. I've got a renewed vigor and interest in them. And so that's what I want to do. I want to do like Peter. I want to stir you up by putting you in remembrance. And I'll show you what I mean by that. John chapter 1, great gospel record in the Bible. We're going to read verses 35 through 51. Would you stand with me, please? If you're able to do that, we'll read the Bible together. Verse 35 down to 51. I know it's a lengthier passage of scripture, so I will read fast. You listen fast, okay? It says, again the next day after John, and that's John the Baptist. Remember when John, who is writing this gospel, he doesn't refer to himself as John when he writes. He refers to himself as the beloved, the one that Jesus loved. And he, so this is referring to John the Baptist. He stood in two of his disciples. And looking upon Jesus as he walked, he saith, Behold, the Lamb of God. So John now identifies Jesus as the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. Now, remember, that's what was supposed to happen. John was not upset that they stopped following him and started following Jesus. He's the one that said, I must decrease, he must increase. So that's what was supposed to happen. And so Jesus then turned and saw them following and saith unto them, What seek ye? They said unto him, Rabbi, which is to be, say, being interpreted, Master, where dwellest thou? So he asked the question you tell your kids not to ask. They said, can we come over your house? <laughs> I mean, that's what they were asking. And don't you love this? I love this. This is awesome in Scripture. Verse 39, he saith unto them, come and see. Yeah, you can come over. How many of you would give every last penny you have to sit in Jesus' house and eat lunch with him and spend 24 hours with him? Wow. 
And so here they are, they're hanging out with Jesus. They came and saw where he dwelt and abode with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two which heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first findeth his own brother Simon and saith unto him, We have found the Messiah, which is, being interpreted, the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And when Jesus beheld him, he said, Thou art Simon, the son of Jonah. Thou shalt be called Cephas, which is by interpretation a stone. The day following, Jesus would go forth into Galilee and findeth Philip, and saith unto him, Follow me. Now Philip was, was of Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip findeth Nathanael. And saith unto him, We have found him, of whom Moses and the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said unto him, Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip saith unto him, Come and see. He said, Come see for yourself. You come inspect it. Then Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and saith of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no guile. Nathanael said unto him, Whence knowest thou me? Jesus answered and said unto him, Before that Philip called thee, when thou wast under the fig tree, I saw thee. I think you have to read between the lines of Scripture. There's something in there. Jesus supernaturally identified something he shouldn't have known otherwise. And that intrigued uh, Nathaniel. It says, And Nathaniel answered and said unto him, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God, thou art the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said unto him, Because I said unto thee, I saw thee under a fig tree, believest thou? <laughs> thou shalt see greater things than these. And he saith unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Hereafter ye shall see heaven open. And the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. I want to preach to you this morning, same Christ, different converts. Our people in this text got saved. They got saved by the same Jesus. They just got saved different ways. And I really believe if we can walk out of here rejoicing that we've been saved, revival would have already been started. Again, I'm not going to tell you something you don't know. I just want to stir you up by putting you in remembrance. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd help me to preach and teach this morning. Fill me with thy spirit and use me to be a blessing to these people. If somebody here is not saved, I pray they would trust you today. And if somebody is here and they're saved, I pray that we would leave here rejoicing in that salvation. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. you may be seated. Appreciate you standing so long. Of course, ministry today has some things that maybe you wish would be different, but it is so. And one of those things by that I mean is this, at our church we uh, run background checks on people that serve in our ministry. So anybody we hire, we run background checks on. Anybody that works in our children's ministry, we want to run background checks. I would imagine this church would have a similar practice. Could you imagine if a background check had been done on the 12 disciples? <laughs> Could you imagine if uh, some company came in to evaluate these guys and give their assessment uh, this is not something I put together. I found this, but I think it's pretty good. Here's what the report might say. Peter is emotionally unstable and given to fits of temper. Andrew has absolutely no qualities of leadership. The two brothers, James and John, place personal interest above company loyalty. Thomas de demonstrates a questioning attitude that could easily undermine morale. Matthew has been blacklisted by the Capernaum Better Business Bureau. James and Thaddeus definitely have radical leanings, and they both registered a high score on the manic depressive scale. Simon is a zealot with terrorist tendencies and is always looking for ways to attack and annihilate the Romans. One of the candidates, however, shows great potential. He's a man of high ability and resourcefulness. He's outgoing and has a keen business mind. He has contacts in high places. He's highly motivated, ambitious, and responsible. We recommend Judas Iscariot as your controller and right-hand man. I think that that sounds about right, doesn't it? You know, when you think about it from our perspective, the gospel, you understand what I mean by the gospel, the good news? What is the good news? The good news is that you don't have to live separated from God. You can have a friendship with God. You can be restored to right relationship with God because of what Jesus Christ, His Son, has done, and that's died on the cross, was buried, and rose from the dead. That's the gospel in a nutshell, right? The good news. You understand that the gospel, the success of this wonderful message, rested on 12 flawed men. What you think about the church? This is a local New Testament Bible-believing church. And you understand that over 2,000 years ago, the future success of the church rested on the shoulders of 12 really ordinary men. Think about that. These men were prone to mistakes. 
I'll tell you, my favorite character he's mentioned in this text is Peter. That's my favorite outside of Jesus. That's my favorite character in the Bible. I love Peter, and I love him because I can relate to him. Meaning this, one commentator said this about Peter. They said he had a foot-shaped mouth. You can relate to that. Anybody else in here relate to that? I can relate to that. He had a foot-shaped mouth, but he said this, but he had a cross-shaped heart. I love that about Peter. I can relate to Peter because one moment he'll do something good. Any of you, can, can any of you like that? I mean, come on, husbands. Any of you, I mean, like, I mean, come on. Just admit it. That was a good move right there. You said the right thing. You gave the right answer. You bought the right gift. You did it. And then you turn around right after that and do something colossally stupid. That was Peter. And I can relate to him. He was prone to mistakes, wasn't he? He was an ordinary man, and all of these men were. Uh, he was not only prone to mistakes, or they were prone to mistakes, they were prone to misstatements. You know, think about it. If you as a preacher especially talk as much as I do, you're bound to say something stupid. Now, I've got a list running. <laughs> not too long ago, we were sitting around. It's our, kind of our custom on Sunday nights. My family all gets together. i got two married children now. They all come over to the house Sunday nights. And we were sitting around, and one of my kids said, Dad, you know what you said tonight? I said, I say a lot of things. How am I supposed to remember exactly what I said? Well, you said a good one tonight. I said, what did I say? They said, Dad, you were trying to talk about how in the Old Testament, lepers were not allowed into the camp, but you said leprechauns aren't allowed in the camp. <laughs> I said, I did not say that. And I looked at my wife and she said, you said leprechauns. <laughs> Listen, we can relate to people who make mistakes. We can relate to people who make misstatements. These were men that at times had bad attitudes. We talked about that in Sunday school. It's easy for us to just out of nowhere develop a bad attitude. Our flesh just takes over and we just act in ways that we shouldn't. These were men that had lapses of faith. Again, Peter doing something great and then doing something. We love him. He's walking on the water and there he is out there, but he takes his eyes off of Christ and he lapses in his faith and begins to sink. These were 12 very, as one author put it, 12 very ordinary men. And I love that because they are living proof that God's strength is made perfect in weakness. I think about that. Jesus spent most of his ministry pouring his life into the lives of a dozen disappointments. Now a careful look at this chapter shows us that he is assembling a team. And his team is assembled in stages. Sometimes we forget this. These 12 men were not saved at first. They had to come to a place where they put their faith in Jesus Christ. So, so John chapter 1 is their conversion. It's when these disciples got saved. If, if you continue to study the life, if you go to Luke chapter 5, I'm not asking you to turn there, but that is when he called them into the ministry. So, so they got saved first, and then after some time, then Jesus calls them, hey, forsake your business, forsake uh, your, your, your normal life and come and follow me. And it's what we would say in our jargon, they, they entered into full-time Christian services then. And then in Luke chapter 6 is when he commissioned them to be an apostle and gave them that responsibility. So this, this happened in stages. But I want you to see something. I, I, I purposely did not draw attention to it when we read our text because I think sometimes, I know I'm guilty of this, <clears throat> I read the Bible a little too quickly. I just kind of gloss through and pass on, and sometimes you, you, you can miss something. And sometimes it's those, those little things that, 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 are, that are gems hidden in the pages of Scripture. And I, I want to draw your attention back to verse 39. Remember they had asked Jesus, hey, can we come over to your house? And he says, sure. Now some of you might say, well, I didn't think Jesus had a house. The Bible says that birds had the nests and foxes had the holes and Jesus did. Well, I, he had some kind of dwelling place, maybe some kind of makeshift tent or hut or some place that he set up, maybe some place that he was temporarily borrowing to stay in. And he, he invites them over and, 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 and they saw where he, it says where he dwelt. So he was dwelling somewhere. And they're fellowshipping and they're eating and he's teaching them and he's investing in them. And I want you to see this. This just really blessed me when I found it. It says, an abode with him, mark this, that day. Man, I like that. That day. Remember, John is writing this. 
And he, and he even adds this, and there really, I cannot think of any theological significance, he says, and it was about the 10th hour. I think that has personal significance. I, I kind of imagine, I don't know it to be sure, it's just speculation on my part, but I just, I just imagine that John might have put down his quill at that moment and just sat back and said, hmm, it was that day. The day I'll never get over. I remember that day, and I remember the time. Oh, it was about the 10th hour. Listen, that day changed my life forever. Listen, today, I want to ask you the question, do you remember that day? Do you remember when it was that day for you? Oh, I'm not asking you specifically, do you know if it was a Monday, a Tuesday, a Wednesday, a Thursday, a Friday, a Saturday, a Sunday? I, I don't specifically remember what day of the week, but I remember it was that day. You might not remember it was 6.17 p.m. when I trusted Christ. You may not know that, but again, I'm asking you, do you remember that day? Listen, see, I, I want you to understand this morning what grieves my heart, even for my own life, but, but as a pastor, you know, I, I preach and minister to people who, who got over that day a long time ago. And again, I'm not trying to create, uh, you know, come in here with some new truth, but I really believe this. If, if we will get fired up about the fact that we're saved, then revival will have taken place. But the problem is, is some of us got over that day. You're like me. I got saved 40 years ago this June. 40 years ago. And listen, I pastor people. They're saved and they're mad about it. You know anybody like that? You know any Christians that look like they got baptized in vinegar? I'm serious. It's, I mean, listen, we ought never get over it. You understand, I love to tell the story. For those that know it best, seem hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest. Hey, and when in scenes of glory I sing a new, new song, it will be the old, old story that I have sung so, uh, sung so long. Listen, what I'm trying to say is, listen, let's all get excited about being saved. You say, well, where's all that in the text? Let's come back to the text. I want to show you three different ways people generally come to Christ. Because to me, it doesn't matter so much how you came to Christ, but that you came to Christ. And I want you to see this. Three different ways people come to Christ. Number one, some people come to Christ through a preacher's message. Did you catch that? Verse 35 through 40, it talks about John the Baptist. Now, Andrew and John were already followers of John the Baptist. And what we know and remember and understand, I mean, John the Baptist was a great character. In fact, Jesus himself said, hey, listen, and nobody like John. I mean, all the people ever been born, John is an exceptional person. But what do you know about John? John, if you know about his character, John was a preacher, wasn't he? Now, now think about the kind of preaching he preached. Now, there's different kinds of preachers. Phillips Brooks defined preaching this way. It's truth presented through personality. All right, so if a preacher's not a funny person, then they don't need to be telling jokes. All right? You ever heard some guy, he tried, and was like, eh. so, Some guys are soft, they, like, like meaning soft speaking. They, they, they don't get, some people get real wound up and fired up, move around, pound the pulpit. With, listen, truth presented through personality. Well, what do you know about John? Would you say that he was a, a nice, easygoing fella? Is that how you would describe what you know about John? Now, John, John doesn't come across as a nice, easygoing fella, does he? I mean, he was, a, he was a preacher that preached, I would call what we would what we'd classify as a hard preacher. I mean, here he is, he's out there, and he's, he's preaching repent. I mean, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I mean, he's calling people out about their sin. You better get right, the Messiah is on the scene. When he's here, you don't want to miss him. And if you're dilly-dallying around in your sin, God help you, man. I mean, he's preaching. He's wearing that camel skin garment, man. I don't know what that looked like, but probably looked like your youth director's suit or something like that, you know what I mean? Like, I mean, he's wearing this camel skin garment, got this big belt on. He's dipping bugs in honey. I mean, this guy's crazy. I mean, he's attacking political leaders. I mean, he didn't mess around. John. And his message was about one who was going to come along and change everything. And he's out there preaching that. One day, Jesus is passing by. And John has now been given the green light by God to identify this Messiah. Now, now, what do you know about Jesus, right? What was his profession? Help me out, church. He's a carpenter. 
So I think we think of Jesus as being some, you know, long-haired, pert-plus guy. You know? Like they always like why is it in Renaissance paintings he's always wearing a white robe, nothing but white, white and blue sash, always blue. Why does it got to be blue? And you notice he always holds his hands like this. Does anybody know anybody anywhere that walks around like this? In Renaissance paintings he does. And he, he's kind of pale-skinned. By the way, he wasn't some white dude. He was a Jewish guy. He had olive-colored skin, I'm sure. And so and he's, he's this pale-looking guy with this forlorn look. <laughs> holding his hands like this with a halo around him. It's like everybody would know who he is. That's not the way it was. John says, there he is. I believe Jesus was very masculine. I, he was a carpenter. I bet he had big, strong forearms. I think he had calluses on his hands. He's a carpenter. I don't know what a carpenter looked like in the first century. I know what a carpenter looks like in this century. Carhartt pants, flannel shirt, tool belt, little Bob the Builder hammer going on there. And here's Jesus saying, John the Baptist says, there he is. There's the lamb. It's going to take away the sin. And I can imagine people, again, I'm not trying to be snarky, but I just think people say, him? That looks like a guy's going to build my cabinets, not save my soul. And John says, listen, I'm telling you, that's the Lamb of God that's going to take away the sins of the world. You see, in verse 37, it was John the Baptist preaching that pointed them to Jesus. In fact, I want you to notice this. We didn't read it in our text, but I love this. Back in verse 29, it says, The next day uh, John seeth Jesus come in and saith, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sins of the world. So he did it in verse 29, and he does it again in verse 36. Meaning this, he preached the message again. I love that. Because if a message wasn't worth preaching a second time, it wasn't worth preaching in the first place. And I could see his disciples say, hey, John, preach that Lamb of God message again. We like that one. Preach that again. And I, I just am telling you, I think about some of the preachers that have preached. Uh, back in our church, our church's history was a Southern Baptist church before it became a, 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 an independent Baptist church. And so R.G. Lee, great, great preacher of the past, preached in our church multiple times. And he literally preached on more than one occasion that famous sermon, Payday Someday. And some of you old timers will know that sermon. If you don't know it, go look it up online. You will be blessed by that sermon. I wonder how many thousands of times R.G. Lee preached payday someday, and I wonder how many of thousands of people got saved because of that one message. I personally, growing up, J. Harold Smith came to our church, and I've heard him personally preach God's three deadlines. I wonder how many times he preached that sermon, and I wonder how many souls got saved because of that one sermon. Again, I'm just telling you, John the Baptist preached this message, and he preached it repeatedly, whether people recognized it, whether people rejected it, whether people received it. He just, regardless of the response, he preached the message, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sins of the world. And can I pause and say this? I am so thankful for the preachers in my life that preach the truth to me. I am so thankful. You see, that's my testimony this morning. I got saved in a revival meeting because a preacher preached. I hope you don't mind me telling you my testimony. I got saved on a preacher that I bet nobody in this room has ever heard of. His name was Don Short. Can I tell you about Don Short? He was not short. He was six foot six, and this was back in the 80s when white guys permed their hair, so he's more like six eight, six nine. I was like, wow. In fact, I guess if you're that tall, people always are going to ask you if you play basketball. Maybe Brother Short didn't like hearing that because I remember standing next to him and somebody said, Brother Short, you play basketball? And he looked at me and said, do you play miniature golf? I thought that was awesome. I'm like, I like this guy. Don Short didn't pound the pulpit, he didn't rant and holler, he didn't spit on the front row, but he, he had a smooth baritone voice, and he could tell stories like you wouldn't believe. As a little boy, I was enamored with how tall he was. My family got close to him. My dad was not a preacher, but we had this preacher in our home and got to know him as he came to our church frequently. And, and uh, I, I remember just, just 
being taken with him, and he would let me sit with him on the front row. My parents would sit a few rows back, and I thought that was big stuff that I didn't have to sit by my parents. I was about seven years old, and uh, I, I remember he kept, how many of you old-timers remember those foil-packaged rolled-up certs? How many of you remember those mints? He kept those in his pocket like a lot of old-time preachers do, and he would put one in his mouth before he preached, which I always thought was interesting, and uh, maybe just to kind of keep things loosened up there. And, and I remember he would turn and hand me one. Well, I had old school parents. They didn't let you mess around in church. They made you sit still, no talking, no color, and you listen. And he'd give me one of those mints, boy. I'd look back at my parents like, what you going to do? The preacher gave it to me. <laughs> and I loved him. I thought there was something special about him. But that night, just like John's that day, he started preaching the gospel. I remember he started talking about, because, boy, he could paint a picture with his words. He started talking about hell. Well, yeah, he was willing to preach on that most unpleasant subject, and he, he started painting the terrors of, of hell, and he made it very vivid. And it caught my attention. I didn't know it then, but I know how to describe it now. It was called conviction. See, he started talking about that, and I... I thought to myself, I had heard preachers. I grew up in church all my life. I was a church brat, you know. I, I, man, I was, I was in the choir nine months before I showed up. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I drooled on the carpet in the nursery. I, I colored my, my name, name in the hymnals of the books. When the preacher got boring, I read chick tracks. I knew all the old ladies that kept candies in their purses. I was a church brat. <laughs> but that night, that night, when he started saying sinners die and go to hell, before when he said that, I'd be like, yeah, I hope my brother's listening because he's a sinner. I'd tell you that. That night, I knew he was talking to me. When he said that, Je then he started painting the, about the description of the cross. And when he talked about how Jesus died on the cross for sinners, that day conviction set in. I knew, wait a second, I had always known that he died for sinners, but now I know he died for me. When that preacher said, if you'll call upon Jesus to save you, he'll save you. I, for the first time in my life, realized that's what I need to do. And like any good evangelist, he said this, bow your heads and close your eyes. And I thought, no, sir. I'm not closing my eyes. I'm looking right at this preacher man. And he said, if you don't know that you're on your way to heaven, would you raise your hand so that I can pray for you? And man, my hand went up. And like any good evangelist, he said this, I see those hands. <laughs> he knew me. He said, young man, why don't you go to the back of the auditorium with your mom and dad? We went back there and the pastor opened the Bible and told me how to be saved. And I bowed my head and bowed my heart and put what faith I had in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I got saved. I'm thankful for preachers who some, they will never know their name. They will never be recognized and they will never be immortalized, but they were faithful to preach the gospel. I was preaching this message in my own church and I got emotional and I, I don't mind saying it. And I said, I sure wish I could find Brother Short because I'd love to sit down with him and I'd love to just tell him. Yeah, I got saved. I was a six-year-old boy one month away from turning seven. But I'm telling you, I'm 40, almost 47 years old now. And I'd love to look at him and tell him, listen, God called me to preach when I was 17. And God has used me. And listen, hundreds and thousands of people have gotten saved because of my ministry. And, and, and listen, it started because you were faithful to preach the gospel. And the people in my church got fired up. They tried to find him. We found out that he had gone to be with the Lord. I'll forever be grateful Amen. for a preacher who would preach the Bible. Amen. And I don't care if they say it soft or they say it loud. Right. I, I don't care if they're good at illustrations or they're deep in their theology. The message is the same. To become a Christian, you must be aware that you are a sinner in the sight of a holy God and that all of your good works can never atone for your sins. 
You can never work your way to heaven by your good deeds. And you understand this morning that God did not sacrifice his own dear son as an example so that basically good people can learn how to live even better. No, no. God gave his son to save sinners who cannot in any way, shape, or form save themselves. And I know I'm preaching to people this morning. You're on your way to heaven because some preacher stood in a pulpit and preached a message and you responded and you got saved. But I want you to see in our text, not everybody got saved because of preacher's message. Number two, I want you to see this. Some people came to Christ through a personal ministry. Look at verse 41 and 42. He first findeth his own brother Simon and saith unto him, We have found the Messiah, and being interpreted as Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. Andrew did what was the most effective way for anyone to find out about Jesus. He told his friends and he told his family about him. You see in verse 41, Andrew found Peter. You see in verse 45, Philip found Nathaniel. You understand, it's natural to tell people what you've found. Come on, we're walking down memory lane. How many of you remember when grandmas had billfolds and they had those accordion plastic things where they could put pictures in them? And they would pull them out and show you their grandkids and fall out right there. You ever been Now grandmas are armed with iPhones. Yeah, they can't find it. Yeah. I'm more in the camp with Winston Churchill. Somebody said to him one time, said, Sir, have I told you about my grandkids? And he said, No, and I thank you for it. <laughs> Why do grandparents get so excited about their, kid, their grandkids? Man, they're excited about what they found, what they have. You know, I think a lot of Christians have lost that. See, I think most church members see themselves as the mission of the church. That's why they come in and say, what kind of music do you have? What kind of ladies' Bible studies do you have? What kind of children's programs do you have? What are your nurseries like? What, what do you do on this day? What do you do on that day? And again, I'm not against any of those things, and our church has a lot of those things, and we try to do them with great excellence, and we try to use them as tools to reach people, but it just goes to show that most people come in considering themselves to be the mission of the church. But I'm telling you this morning, you are not the mission of the church. You are the missionary of the church. And it is our privilege to tell others of the Savior that we have found. Can I encourage you this morning? You do not need permission to tell others about Jesus. He's already given it to you. He said, all power, all authority has been given to me. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. You do not need college training. And somebody said, well, I'm, not, I'm just not articulate like you are, and I don't have training to do that. Listen, all you have to do is know him. And if you know him, then you can share him with others. And I just wonder, maybe the reason why some people don't tell is because they have nothing to tell. Aren't you thankful for somebody's personal ministry? I know that I'm talking to people here. You weren't in church. You didn't come here a preacher preach. But somebody knocked on your door. Somebody sat in your living room. Somebody took you to lunch. Somebody gave you a book. Somebody went after you with the gospel and cared about your life. Can I tell you another personal testimony? My wife grew up in Alaska. A lot of people ask, well, why, what, you know, what, what got her family up in Alaska? My father-in-law was a military brat and found himself in upstate New York. He's brilliant. My father was very, very intelligent. He got a full ride to Syracuse University, and he turned it down because he said, I do not want to sit behind a desk all my life. He's a very free-spirited person. He was living in a tent in New Mexico, he married my, my mother-in-law. They were living in a tent. They literally were hippies. I mean, doing what hippies do. Y'all tracking me? He got wind that they were building a pipeline up in Alaska. He said, I think I'll do that. He just moved. He's living in a tent. It wasn't that hard, you know. <laughs> moved up to Alaska, built the pipeline. They were living in a bush village. So I grew up in the suburbs of Cincinnati, Ohio. Listen, I don't like camping. I know some of you like camping. I paid way too much money for my house to be doing that stuff. <laughs> my wife grew up in a bush village. Literally, you could not get in there but by plane or by boat. No cars. About 300 people in a bush village, all hippies. She, she grew up with a portion of her life with no electricity. That ain't me, man. 
Bad grammar for emphasis. My mother-in-law was searching for something. She grew up in a, a, a very devout Catholic home. Went to parochial school. I mean, nuns in habits, slapping you with rulers, literally. But she knew something's missing here. Because she never felt like she was good enough. Because she was trying to earn it herself. She, she kind of left that and tried to find it in New Age philosophy. Trying to open her mind to different things and trying to find it. But she was always searching for something. I don't know their names. But two Christians moved into that bush village. I don't know why they moved there. They didn't move there to start a church. There was no church. They, they just moved there. And they began to do what Christians ought to do, but a lot of Christians don't do. They began to share their faith. And they found my mother-in-law. And they gave her the gospel. And my mother-in-law said, that's it. That's what I've been looking for. You mean I don't have to be good enough because I can't be good enough? All I have to do is trust Christ who did it for me. And they said, that's it. And they led her to Christ. My mother-in-law got excited about being saved. That's what should happen. There, remember, there's no church. There aren't even any cars there. There's no church there. She started a little kids study for the local kids in the, in the bush village. And she, she just started giving the gospel and telling Bible stories. And that's how my wife got saved. My father-in-law years later got saved because my, my mother-in-law would be faithful just leaving gospel tracts around, just telling what she could. And now my in-laws, are they still live in Alaska. They're faithful Christians, serving God, loving God with all of their heart. But listen to me, it all goes back to because somebody had a personal ministry. And I'm telling you, I'm here today influenced by those two unknown soul winners showing up in a hippie bush village years ago. My wife got saved because of that. My life is impacted because of that. I'm just telling you, some get saved because of a preacher's message, and some get saved because of a personal ministry. And maybe you're in that second camp there that you got saved because somebody shared their faith. Then you thank God that somebody had enough courage to knock on your door and stand on your porch and sit in your living room and take you to lunch and write you a letter and do whatever they did to reach you for Christ. Thank God for them. But I want to show you a third one, and we've got to get out of here. But some people come to Christ through a providential method. Look at verse 43. The day following, Jesus would go forth into Galilee, and he found Philip. Meaning this, there was no personal soul winner, no personal ministry. There was no preacher's message. Jesus himself went after this guy. It reinforces the truth of Luke 19 and verse 10. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. This verse teaches us that God has not end the, uh, reached the end of his resources, even though preachers are unfaithful to their calling and individuals are apathetic to go. Does not recognize our humanity has its limitations. Listen, there are some people that are not going to come to church. You can invite them all you want to a revival meeting. They're not going to come and hear the preacher preach. I've knocked on thousands of doors. And I've seen some people, they're not going to take the time to listen to you. But can I tell you something encouraging this morning? God is not bound by our limitations. Can I, do we have time for one more story? I was reading a book by a man named Tony Campolo. Tony Campolo is a new evangelical. I would disagree with his philosophy of ministry, but I believe him to be a saved man. And I, I was captivated by the title of this book. It was called How to, Follow, How to Follow Jesus Without Embarrassing God. How many of you know somebody that's, uh, they love Jesus, but you're kind of like, yikes, that's a little embarrassing. You know what I'm saying? Like there's a guy in our town, he, he stands on the street corner sometimes with a megaphone and he has really obscure, almost really offensive, like of all the verses you're going to pick out of the Bible, he doesn't pick John 3, 16. He picks some verse about how God hates divorce. He's got a megaphone, he stands there. And I'm always thinking, oh man, this is so embarrassing to Christians. The title of the book caught my attention. 
He told of a story in that book. He said he, Tony Campbell was, was preaching or, or teaching or speaking, debating at an Ivy League school. Now, he doesn't name the school, but you understand Ivy League school, Yale, Harvard, Brown, some institution like that. I always say these are institutions where they would not even enroll God if he was willing to pay his own tuition. And he's up there debating, right? And, and, he, and he's sitting in the cafeteria with a professor, and he's eating, and he doesn't assume, like, he just assumes himself there's no, none of these professors are saved. None, none of them are believers. And so he gets to talking to this guy, and this guy indicates that he's a believer. And he says, sir, well, I was not expecting any professor in this institution to be a believer. Please tell me how you came to Christ. He said, it was an interesting story. It's very appropriate for a day like today. He said, uh, he said, I was an atheist. And an angry one at that, an angry atheist. So I wanted nothing to do with God. I would try to discredit and disprove God to anybody that would listen to me. He said, but my mother was a believer. She was a believer, and she passed away. When she passed away, I, I, I received a lot of her, her personal effects and belongings. And he said, one of the things that was in, in her personal belongings was, was a family Bible. How many remember those family Bibles? I mean, they're huge. Like, you need a radio flyer wagon to pull the thing around. And it's got, you know, everybody's birth and baptism and everything in there. He said, I have my mother's family Bible. He said, I just put it in a box up in the attic. I didn't really care about it. It was my mom's, and so I just, I just put it up there. He said, I was watching football. He said, as I was watching football... How many of you remember this? How many of you are old enough like me to remember this? Remember the guy that wore the rainbow wig and he was always in the end zone with the sign that said John 3.16? Remember that guy? I don't know if you know this or not, but that was one guy. He would travel around to these key games. It was one guy. He'd wear the rainbow wig. He'd do it. Now, now, you'll still see to this day John 3.16, but there was one guy that was doing that earlier. And, and if you're like me, you're thinking, like, like, you, look, you literally look like a clown. You're wearing a rainbow wig. Like, what, what good is that doing? Well, let me finish this story. He said, I was watching this game, and I saw that guy with the wig in John 3.16. He said, I knew that was a biblical reference, but I couldn't have told you what it said. So I was intrigued, and I went up to the attic, and I got my mother's family Bible. I found John 3.16, and I read it. You know that verse, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. He said, that really intrigued me. So I went to John chapter 1, and I read John chapter 1, John chapter 2, John chapter 3. He said, I read all 21 chapters of John. He said, then I went and thought, you know, what about Matthew? I read all 28 chapters of Matthew. I read Mark. I read Luke. He said, when I was done reading all the Gospels, I was convicted and convinced that Jesus was the Christ, and I put my faith in him. Do you, do you understand what that, that testimony says? What it says is there are things that maybe I wouldn't do, you wouldn't do. You might look at others and say, that's crazy. Why are you doing that? And understand this, God is not bound. Amen. And there are people in this very room. Your story may not be exactly that, but you came to Christ not because of somebody's personal ministry, not because of some preacher's message, but it was a providential method where Jesus himself sought you out and found you and brought you to himself. Amen. Praise God Amen. for that. Amen. Let me wrap this up. It matters not to me how you came to Christ. What matters to me is that you have come to Christ. Amen. So I want to ask you some questions. Question first is this, are you saved? When I say saved, I mean this, you're saved from sin, you're saved from hell, you're going to heaven when you die. A lot of times I ask it this way. Are you 100% sure that if you died today, you'd go to heaven? Amen. Listen, if you're sitting here today and you're thinking, I don't, I don't know that, I've got good news for you. You've heard a preacher's message. And the Holy Spirit is convicting your heart. And you can be saved today and you can know this. But maybe you're sitting here today and you say, oh, I already know that. I, I know I'm saved. I know when I die I'm going to heaven because of what Jesus Christ has done. Then let me ask you this question. Are you thankful for the way that you were saved? Because no matter the method, it's a miracle that you and I have been saved. And we ought to leave here rejoicing about it. So if it's a preacher, why don't you think about that preacher today? It might have been this preacher some other preacher years ago 
Some preacher that ministered in obscurity, it could be a famous one. It matters not. Thank God for them. Maybe it was some soul winner, a family member, a friend. Why don't you thank God for them? Maybe it was none of those things, but you know God found you and sought you out and brought you to himself. You could not go where he was, but he came to you. And you ought to thank God for that. My final question is just simply this. Are you working so that others can come and see? This church ought to be busy about their father's business. We ought to be working so that others could come and see. Before we bow our heads and close our eyes, before we do, I want to do something, if you don't mind. I'm always intrigued by this if I preach this message at a church. And I want you to be able to look around. How many of you got saved because you were in a church service and a preacher preached a gospel message and it brought conviction in your heart and you got saved? How many of that's your testimony? Yeah, look at that. Good number of hands. You can put your hands down. Let me say, it wasn't a preacher's message. Somebody knocked on my door, took me to lunch, came after me and shared the gospel with me. And because of their care and concern, that's how I got saved. Would you raise your hand? Look, that's awesome. Look, that's about even. How many say, preacher, it wasn't either of those things? Providentially, God got, got my attention. Isn't that cool? It's about a third, a third, a third. It really is. Again, it matters not how you came to Christ. We ought to be humble enough to fall on our knees today and say, God, thank you for stirring me up by putting me in remembrance. Can we bow our heads and close our eyes together? Let me ask very quickly. I'm not going to prolong things. If you're here today and you do not know that you're on your way to heaven, you've never been what I keep saying saved. Is there anybody like that? Say, preacher, I don't know that I'd go to heaven but I want to get that matter settled. I want to know more about what the Bible says. Would you raise your hand if that's you? Is there anybody like that? Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. You can put your hand down. Is there anybody else? I don't want to miss anybody. I don't want to overlook anybody. Is there anybody else? All right. Hey, you raised your hand. God's obviously speaking in your heart. Would you look at me for a second? Yeah, nobody else knows who you are. It takes some courage to do what you did and raise your hand. Here's all I'm asking you to do. I'm not going to put you on the spot. Can't make you do something you don't want to do. I'd love to have somebody in this church just take you and privately sit down with you in a room, share some Bible verses with you, and let you make a decision. Would you be willing to let somebody do that? All right. All right, my friend. Hey, brother, can you help me? All right. Look, he's right here. Right, This young man right here. Yep. You, you help him out and take him some private, somewhere privately. Let's pray for this young man. How many of you would say, preacher, God spoke to my heart and stirred me up today. I'm so glad I'm saved. And I'm rejoicing in the way I got saved. How many feel that way this morning? Would you raise your hand? Then let's do something about it. Let's respond to it, okay? Let's, as we've done and our custom is, let's kneel at, a, at the altar up here or kneel at your seat and just walk down memory road and thank God for it. Let's all stand as our friend begins to play and as the pastor takes the invitation, then let's, let's uh, uh, rejoice in our salvation today.